But as we turn our hearts to God's word this morning, we're in this little uh, mini-series called The Transforming Power of the Gospel, and this is the fifth message. And uh, we've looked at the, the gospel expects uh, sacrifice that talks in verses one through two of our relationship with God, and and now we're down to verse three, and uh, we've been looking at in verse two a new way of thinking. The gospel expects not just sacrifice, but the gospel ex- expects a new way of thinking, and to make that happen, uh, you'll see as I read through the text here. I'll just read verses one through three for us, so we're all caught up and ready to go. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then our text for this morning, verse 3. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That verse is very... um, well put for our our modern society we live in because if you know anything about the society we live in we know that it values self-esteem it values the lifting up of yourself Um, i'm reminded of a story of a man who imagined himself to be quite spiritual and He was speaking with a more spiritual, mature friend, and he asked his friend to pray for him. And he said, brother, could you just pray that I would be humble? I want to be humble. Pray pray for me that I might be nothing. Well, his more mature friend replied, probably thinking of 1 Corinthians 128, you are nothing, brother. Take it by faith. (laughs) Toby Keith wrote a song years ago about his girlfriend, I believe it was. And the lyrics said this. I want to talk about me. Want to talk about I. Want to talk about number one. Oh, me. Oh, my, me, my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me. (laughs) See, that tells a story of our modern-day society. Most people in America tell themselves we have to have what we call self-esteem or self-image. And usually that is overinflated. There was an article written by Charles Krauthammer years ago in, in, in the Time magazine. He's a commentator now on Fox, I believe, but uh, he's a psych, uh, psychiatrist. And he wrote this uh, article. He was referring to this study, and he was talking about self-esteem. And he said in the, in the article, he said, In a recent study, a standardized math test was given to teenagers from six different nations. 
But besides the math questions, the test asked the youngsters to respond yes or no to this question or this statement. I am good at mathematics. So amongst all the math problems, there was this statement, I am good at mathematics, yes or no. What they found out in the study was American students, when they tallied up all the answers to the tests, scored lowest on the math section of this test. Far behind the Korean students who had some of the top scores on the test mathematically. They also found out that more than three-fourths of the Korean students had answered no to the question, I am good at mathematics. In stark contrast, however... (laughs) Yeah, you hear it. 68% of the American students believe that their math scores and their skills were just fine. See, that shows us our kids may be failing in math, but they feel good about it. You know, and that's okay. I mean, that's the society we live in. And see, that is what Paul is addressing here in Romans 12, 3. He begins in verses 1 through 2 of really reminding us that, you know what, we're, we're called to serve. Um, we saw those two commands from last week. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed. This is something that we're so far gone, we can't do it ourselves. It's something that God has to do in and through us. We need to be transformed. And that means a, a change, not just Inside, but one that leads to the outside, the outward appearance. And that transformation, we noted three things about the transformation. This is all review from last week. It's a life, a lifelong work of God for which you are responsible. It's God working in you, but you need to cooperate with God. It's your responsibility as well. Secondly, we saw that the means of transformation is the renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind. And we said, basically, there's, there's two ways to do that. God's word is the primary source of mind renewal. To cleanse our mind with the word of God each and every day. It will change the way you're, you're thinking. And then also, we're gifted with gifted teachers and examples in God's word. And they're sources for changing our mind as well. And then thirdly, not only a lifelong work. It's not only this transformation of the renewing of our mind, but the result of the transformation is that you will prove in practice God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Now, I don't know of any believer that would say, oh, I'm not concerned with God's will. If they're a true believer, they're definitely concerned with God's will. They want to know God's will. And so when we come to verse 3 here in Romans 12, Paul is basically saying, based on on what what I've told you here, that this, this happens by his grace. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So it's all inclusive. We're all in need of God's grace, and we all need to listen up and hear what Paul is saying here in this text to us. And so he wants to combine the right estimation of ourselves with faith with a humbleness that only can come from Christ. If you're going to outline this text, there's a couple different ways you could do it. Um, One commentator outlined verses 1 through 
13 or, or 1 through 21 of, of Romans 12 this way. The Christian's relationship to God, verses 1 and 2. The Christian's relationship to the church, verses 3 and 13. And then down 14 to 21, the Christian's relationship to a hostile world. But for our message this morning, let's start here. Think Thinking rightly about ourselves, verse 1. Thinking rightly about fellow believers, verses 4 and 5. And thinking rightly about our gifts, because that's what he's leading into here. Remember, we, we said that the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, implies sacrifice. It implies service. It's not an option for the Christian, whether or not they're going to be involved in ministry. It's just a matter of what degree you're involved and so when we come to this, this word thinking here is all over the place in the text. And this word in the original language means to make a right estimate of things. To make a right estimate of things. It has the idea that, you know what, something is wrong and it needs to be corrected. And so he tells us here that there's two ways of thinking. There's two ways of thinking. But before we get to that, we have to look at our errors in our thinking. The errors in our thinking. First of all, sometimes we like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's what he says there. He says that we think of our ways, our, ourselves, more highly than we ought to think. Um, you know, he says basically, don't be conformed to the world's thinking. That's one way. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind and be focused on that kind of thinking. So there's a wrong way of thinking that we're to reject when you think too highly of yourself. And there's a right kind of thinking that we're to embrace when we think what the text says is soberly. And so we want to be clear. You might say this verse this way. I say through the grace that is given to me to every one of you that you should not estimate yourself beyond what you should estimate. But that you should estimate yourself in such a way as to have a sense, a sensible estimate of yourself. Three times here in Romans, Paul warns against what we would call pride. If you look at it in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 18, he points that out to us there. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. He points that arrogance as a form of pride. Or down in verse 20, he says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become what? Proud. All right. He points it out there. And then he also points it out in the previous chapter in verse 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. All right, that's a form of pridefulness. And then he brings it up here once again in verse 3. And he mentions it again in verse 10. He says, Out, outdo one another in showing honor. All right, has the idea, give preference to one another. Don't be prideful. Or in verse 16, where he says, live in harmony with one another. What? Do not be haughty, is the word. All right? And so he, he, this is on his mind. He's pointing this out to these believers here in Rome. 
And, and pride is this underlying rebuke over and over and over again throughout the book of Romans. In chapter 14, verse 4, Paul says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Or in verse 10 of Romans 14, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For he will stand before the judgment seat of God. So he's saying basically, who are you to judge each other? Paul was concerned that his readers, that the, the group that he was writing to here, would grow in their, their humility. I mean, the Christian church has listed pride as one of the, what, seven deadly sins, right? Along with the other ones, wrath, greed, slothfulness, lust, envy, gluttony. But for whatever reason, since all this psychobabble has invaded our minds, started back in the 70s, we as a church have been just flooded with books that talk about growing in self-esteem. That you need to feel better about yourself. And that's the opposite of what Scripture says as far as humility is concerned. Probably one of the biggest promoters of this idea of of self-esteem being a virtue was Robert Schuller of the infamous Crystal Cathedral. He wrote in a book called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. He sent it to every pastor in the U.S., He said, I want every pastor to understand this. Here's what he says. In my lectures to thousands of ordained clergy of the widest cross-section of historic Christianity, I have found it necessary to tell my colleagues, dare to be a possibility thinker. Do not fear pride. The easiest job God has is to humble us. God's almost impossible task is to keep us believing every hour of every day how great we are as his sons and daughters on planet Earth. Do you hear the pride in that statement? Do you hear? I mean, if if we should not fear pride, beloved, why does James chapter 4 verse 6 say God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. Why does God promise in Isaiah 66, verse 2, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word? See, if we shouldn't fear pride, why does Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, tell us pride goes before what? Destruction or a fall and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Or even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands <laughs> take heed lest he fall. See, we have to be understanding that we are not to prop ourselves up. I mean, that was the original sin that was in the heart of Satan himself was pride. He wanted to make himself like the Most High God. And to be honest with you, pride is at the root of every sin that we ever commit. It would seem that we should fear pride and seek to grow in humility more than anything else. 
So how do we define this word, humility? The opposite of pride. One commentator says, it is the spontaneous recognition of God's It is the spontaneous recognition of the creature's absolute dependence on his creator. Humility is the logical corollary of sin consciousness. Andrew Murray, my grandson, has just started his discipleship program with an intern over at his church. And I was interested to know, my daughter says, hey, have you ever heard of this book, Humility, the Beauty of Holiness by Andrew Murray? And I said, yeah, why? And she said, oh, Mason's going through that with his discipler. I said, wow, that's pretty good. Here's what he says. He calls it the place of entire dependence on God. That's what humility is. He adds, humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God, and it alone allows him as God to do all. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all, in which we make way for God to be all. The men have been going through the the book, a matter of fact, we're meeting this coming Thursday uh, for our men of the word. Um, and we've been going um, through a, a book called The Exemplary Husband. And Stuart Scott says this. He says, when someone is humble, they are focused on God and others, not self. Even their focus on others is out of a desire to love and glorify God. A humble person's goal is to elevate God and encourage others. In short, they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Then he gives this definition. The mindset of of Christ, a servant's mindset, a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and exaltation of God and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things he has given. C.J. Mahaney wrote a little book on humility. It's called Humility, True Greatness. And he puts humility this way. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. See, until you get those two things right, God's holiness and our sinfulness, you're not going to get it at all. He adds this. He says, without an honest awareness of both these realities, all self-evaluation will be skewed and will fail to either understand or practice true humility. So you could sum up true humility means seeing God as the giver and the sustainer of everything and seeing ourselves as sinful and needy in his presence so that we trust totally in him and not in ourselves so that he gets all the glory. Don't forget that Paul ended Romans 11 with that doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. See, God is the source. He is the sustainer of everything around us. And all glory is due to him. And so in light of that, Paul says, hey, that's why you want to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. You want to serve him. You want to sacrifice for him. 
The only way to do that is to be transformed, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed in your thinking. That word to think or the compound of it applies here four times in our text. It has the idea of really considering something, thinking about it, pondering it. And it says that we shouldn't think of ourselves more than what we should. And Paul's pointing that out because he knows that it's too often the case. That's why James chapter 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will what? He will lift you up. He will exalt you. And so Paul is leading us here in Romans 12 to first of all examine our relationship in verses 1 through 2 with God himself. Are we serving him? Are we living in sacrificial in a sacrificial way for his glory. But then in verse 3, he wants us to understand, you know what, you have to be thinking about yourself correctly in order for this to happen. Well, what are two common errors in our thinking? Because he says not to think of himself more highly than he ought. And that's the first one, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's the first common error. We all do that at times. And this is the greater, I would say, of the two dangers because it's the one that comes most naturally. And the reason this is because it's linked to pride. It's linked to our sinfulness. Almost everyone thinks more highly of himself than he ought on occasion, if not most of the time. And if we were all to be honest, we want other people to have that same view of us. Some people have high opinions of themselves because they've been born into a family or, or their wealth or their intellect, whatever it might be. Michael Horton wrote a book years ago called Power Religion, the selling out of the evangelical church. And he covered certain subjects like power politics, power evangelism, power growth, the power within and power preachers. Here's what he concludes. Even in the Christian world, there's a tremendous spirit of self-confidence and pride. Our church growth projects will at last usher in the kingdom. Or we'll do it by performing signs and wonders. What some proponents even refer to as magic. Or perhaps we will rule by taking over the public institutions and exert political, social, and economic pressure on the enemies of Christ. Others may wish to achieve power through tapping the inner resources of the individual through the latest offerings of pop psychology. Some will demonstrate this self-confidence by reinforcing personality cults, legalistic restrictions, and peer pressure. Finally, some will appeal to the power of fear, paranoia, to gather follower, uh, followings as if they had an inside track on such divine secrets as the date of our Lord's return. Evangelical gatherings are often marked by a certain smugness about the uniqueness of our generation in God's plan. None of this is unique to our time. You see these things rising up in the church throughout history. Paul himself was writing to Romans 
from Corinth on his third missionary journey while he was living in the midst of the church that had been marked by the pursuit of such worldly goals as family prestige, education, and political power. So this isn't something new. But that's why I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So we need to be reminded that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. How do you do that? You do that by God's grace. You realize that, you know what, everything you have is by the grace of God. Everything. And secondly, you remember who you once were. Don't ever forget those two things. It's so important that a a lost world see a Christian who does not walk around smugly or pridefully, but walks around broken, walks around ready to do whatever they can to bring glory to their God. Well, the second error in our thinking is to think too lowly of ourselves. Some people call that a false humility. Sometimes you have Christians who walk around and they have ashes on their head and they're, woe is me, you know, it's kind of like the, the black cloud over their head and, you know, you pay them a compliment and they can't deal with it and, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe that, you know. Um, I learned long ago that the best way to deal with compliments from people, whether whatever it is, some people just because of their shyness or whatever it might be, don't like to be complimented. But the best way to deal with it is not to deny it, but just say, you know what, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. You know, we don't need to think too lowly of ourselves on the other spectrum as well. We have to not have a self-esteem, but we have to have a what? A Christ-esteem. And that's what he, he tells us there in uh, Philippians chapter 4.13. He tells us very clearly how we should counteract our own fleshly thinking. Paul says, I can do all things through who? Through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. And see, that's, that's the kind of Christ esteem we need to understand. That none of us are so far broken that we're beyond the grace of God, that we're beyond the hand of God. That God can't somehow change us, transform us. Don't ever buy into that lie. And once you become a believer, once you become a Christian, you have to realize that, well, wait a minute. Um, who am I in Christ? See, this is the problem with most, most believers. is that They begin to believe the lie that the enemy is selling And they start to feel horrible about themselves. And maybe it's even their life before Christ or even some mess-ups after they became a Christian. And the enemy takes those things and and, and just brings them to the, the forefront in their lives and they can't get beyond those things. 
So therefore, they don't even feel worthy as a Christian to, to come to church or to worship or to serve. And so they find themselves cloistered up in some apartment somewhere, maybe listening to some preacher on the TV once in a while. See, that's not what God has called us to. And there's a lot of reasons why we, we get in that kind of mindset. We believe our own bad press. <laughs> Whether it's from parents, whether it's from kids at school. I mean, those kind of things can be devastating. I remember when I went through a, a time here, I was getting a lot of negative emails for something that I stood up for. And, I mean, the more I read these emails, they call you every name in the book and just, you know, which is, you know, it's horrible. And I thought, wow, these people don't even know me. And it started to affect me personally. I mean, I didn't even want to come out of my house. I'm thinking, wow, you know, everybody hates me. Why? Because I was believing the bad press. Don't believe bad press about yourself. Secondly, we're identifying with our sin. Now, we're not talking here about the sin nature. We have to recognize that we are sinners. But we also have to understand that, you know what? We are sinners, but what are we? We're forgiven. We're cleansed by the, the debt of, or by the blood of Christ. That we don't have a debt. The debt was paid for us. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls us what? Saints. See, some of us can stay lost in our past, and, and that leads us to think so lowly of ourselves that we're never any earthly good for the Lord at all. A lot of those feelings come from promiscuity. Someone crossing the line somewhere in your life. And that just kind of sticks with you. And you have to go back and you have to remind yourself, no, wait a minute, I am a new person in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I think another reason is just false humility. Some people are proud that they're humble. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's funny sometimes, but I'd love to say this. I've never done this. But, you know, when you compliment somebody, boy, you really did it. Oh, I'm not good at that. You know, I, you know well, you're a pretty bright person. No, I'm not, I'm not bright at all. I'd love to say to them, you know what? You're right. You're as dumb as a hammer. And just see what the response is. Because, you know what? If that humility is true, they're not going to be offended, right? But most of us don't like to be put in that. And so a lot of it is it's a false humility. You know, we want someone to come along and say, oh, build us up so we can just say, oh, no, no, no. And we have to be careful there. Just say, you know what? Praise the Lord. Or the last thing is laziness. Some people fail to pursue getting a, a better job or making more money or working hard because they confuse doing their best in life with pride. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says this, if, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. See, laziness is not God's will. God does not applaud poverty. That's not what he's into. And see, some people who think more lowly of themselves than they ought, they won't be helped by propping themselves up artificially either. And parents, be careful with this. 
as parents, as grandparents. You know, sometimes we want to overstate the applause for our kids. We want to be almost superficial in our praise of them. I mean, don't tell somebody they're brilliant when they're not. Don't tell them they're awesome when they're average. Don't tell them they're, they're beautiful if they're plain. Now, that may sound hard. I remember someone told their child, you can do anything you want. Anything you want. And I remember telling that parent, well, you know, that advice is not really good advice. Because I don't know if it's true. First of all, why would you want your child to do whatever they want? Wouldn't you want your child to do whatever God wants them to do? See, we have to be careful the words we use. And when we apply it to the gospel, don't you dare go out there and give people a false hope of being a Christian when there's nothing in their life that shows that they are. You're not being loving to that person. You're being cruel. See, these kind of people do not need propping up artificially by telling them they're brilliant when they're not or beautiful when they're not. I'm not saying that you pick on them. I'm not saying that you tear them down, but rather find a proper self-evaluation in spiritual terms. If they're Christians, they need to recognize that, you know what, they've been made in the image of God. So in that way, they are beautiful. Even if they feel ineffective in themselves, they are important to God because God has made us to do what? Good works. Ephesians 2.10. So we need to be careful because we live in such a society today where, you know, you don't have games anymore. You don't have sporting games anymore because, God forbid, someone might win. You know, they don't want to keep score. Everybody gets the trophy. I mean, where is that in the Bible? I mean, you know, you have winners and you have losers. That's giving people false hope. Now, I'm not saying you're not fair and you're, yeah, I understand with, with children, but that's where it starts. It starts with children. You know, they don't have baseball games, they have t-ball. So everybody gets a chance and an opportunity and everybody gets to play and everybody's patted on the back for their wonderful skills, even though they may not have any. That doesn't help them. Because you know what? These kids are going to grow up thinking that they're wonderful and then they're going out into a world that's cruel and is willing to tell them, you're not wonderful. So you have to be careful with that. So you have to understand Christ's esteem. You have to remember who you are in Christ. Well, then, what's the right way to think about ourselves here quickly? Well, first of all, Paul says, with sober judgment. We're to think of ourselves with sober judgment. And we're to do that in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given. First of all, with sober judgment. That word means with a sound mind. In other words, you know, calling a spade a spade. Being honest, thinking about it. And as Christians, it's even more important. 
remember reading a, a sermon by Ray Stedman, who's a former, he's deceased now, but he used to be the pastor of uh, Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. And he said every morning when he got up, he tried to remind himself of these three things. First of all, I am made in the image of God. I'm not an animal. I don't have to behave like an animal. I have an ability within me given by God himself to respond and to relate to God. Therefore, I can behave as a man and not as a beast. We need to remind ourselves we're created in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Secondly, he says that I am, as a believer, filled with the Spirit of God. Though I don't deserve it in the least degree, I have the power of God at work within me. I've become, in some sense, the bearer of God, and God himself is willing to be at home in me through the problems and pressures I go through day to day. And then thirdly, he says, I am part of the plan of God. And this is the part that we need to be reminded of more often. God is working out all things to a great and final purpose in this earth, and I am part of it. What I do today has purpose and significance and meaning. This is not a meaningless day that I'm going through. Even in the... Even the smallest incident, the most apparently insignificant word or relationship is involved in his great plan. Therefore, all of it has meaning and purpose. Stedman goes on, he says rightly, that there is nothing better than this to set us up on our feet and give us confidence without conceit or pride. When we think of ourselves in this way, we are indeed thinking soberly. We're evaluating ourselves as God's creatures without either vanity or lack of proper self-esteem. We also says here that we should do this sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has provided. With the measure of faith that God has provided. He says to rightly think about ourselves, it has to be in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you and given me. This is simply seeing ourselves as made in the image of God, given the Holy Spirit, having part in his overall plan. It involves each one of us uniquely. Isn't it wonderful that we don't all serve in the same way? That we're all different personalities? That we all do things differently? How boring would the church be if when you became a believer, you just became like everybody else? (laughs) And your personality was lost somehow. Faith here is really leading into the idea of our individual spiritual gifts received by faith. Because that's where he's going. Because he begins to talk about the body in verse 4, how we serve. And so he has in mind here that, you know what? The way you are gifted is very unique. Celebrate that. You know, I, I, I remember early on in ministry being intimidated by other pastors because I didn't have maybe the intellect of them or the desire to just lock myself in my office for 12 hours a day with commentaries and books and just, oh, this is what I love to do. That's not me. And I remember feeling guilty and, and, and almost forcing myself to do something that I was not comfortable doing let alone have the ability to do. 
Now, there's a sense of that, that it's, it's more of a struggle for me because you've got a lot going on, and so you're multitasking, you're doing a lot of different things. So I have to make sure that I keep my, my, myself in the, in the chair long enough to have something for Sunday mornings. But I'll tell you, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. And other people just are very, very gifted at that. They're very, they, they enjoy that process. I enjoy the process of learning. I, enjoy, I think that's why God allowed me to go into ministry, that he blessed me with a, with a, with a career that said, you know what, you're not going to get away with not being in my word. <laughs> I'm going to make you be in my word because I'm going to give you a calling on your life where you're going to have to rely on God every day of every week so that you can stand up and, and ex- exhort the body of Christ through the teachings of the Bible. And if you don't, understand what you're teaching, you're going to look like an idiot. And God knew that I had enough pride that I don't want to look like an idiot every week. So, you know, that keeps me in that chair for as long as I need to have something to share on Sunday mornings. You know, but I, I you know, I'll, I'll study for a little bit and I got to get up. I got to go do something. I like to work with my hands. So I'll go fix something or do something. I'll come back and I'll do it again. Um, and that's just, you know, the way God created me. And he created you different. And that's the blessing of the church. We're all called to serve the same God. We don't have all the gifts all the time. And we're to evaluate our contribution to the church on the basis of those gifts that we have. And that's why it's important to be reminded that, you know what? God has made you uniquely part of this body. And you know what? When you're not here, you're missed. Something gets undone. And that's why it's so important to realize that, you know what? When you have it right, when you begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, and you begin to realize, hey, the whole purpose of me being here is to serve. I'm a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. I'm not coming here to be served. I'm coming here to serve. So if you're coming here to serve and you're not here, guess what? Some service goes undone. And we need to be reminded of that. John Murray says this, It is called the measure of faith in the restricted sense of the faith that is suited to the exercise of this gift. And the nomenclature is used to emphasize the cardinal place which faith occupies not only in becoming members of this community, but also in the specific functions performed as members of it. So what do we end with here? Well, there's four practical steps here to develop true humility. First of all, always keep God's grace in view. You didn't get where you were just because of you. If that's your idea, you have a wrong perspective. You have a wrong perspective concerning God, and you have a wrong perspective concerning yourself. Secondly, work on going lower, not higher. So many times, people want to start at the top. And it's a constant struggle to kind of climb to the top of the ladder. And so... Even in ministry, people are constantly looking for a bigger, better church, a bigger, better ministry, whatever it might be, because they believe that lie. And the Bible says, no, you know what? Work on becoming more humble 
not more prideful. Thirdly, remember, all that you have comes from God. Everything that you have, parents, your children, are a gift to you from God. They're on loan to you from God. Your job, your car, your house, your family, whatever it might be, it's grace to you from God himself. And then fourthly, determine what God has given you to do and seek to use it for his glory, trusting him for the results. See, these are very practical steps to helping us keep in check that pride. When you realize, hey, it's all God's grace, that I need to be more humble, not more prideful, that this all comes from the Lord, and that we we really need to serve him for his glory. And that's where Paul says here, basically in verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Next week, we'll look into verse 4 and begin to talk about the different giftings in the body of Christ and how you can be used for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be part of your son's body, the church. And, Lord, you've called us for a purpose. Lord, help us to remind ourselves that it's not all about us. It's about you and you alone. And so, Lord, help us to think not too lowly of ourselves at times with a false humility and also not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to have that proper balance whereby you receive the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, we pray for each heart that's here this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, maybe you haven't had your mind transformed your thinking transformed by the glorious gospel of Christ. That's just a prayer away when you acknowledge your need of that kind of transformation. As we said previously, it all comes from a proper perspective of who God is, a holy God. In us, his creation is being sin, sinners who are removed from him because of that sin. And yet he loved us so much, he didn't allow that sever in our relationship to be eternal, but he said there's a way out of that. You can bridge that. That's through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died and rose again on the third day. If you put your faith, your trust in Christ as the risen Savior, you cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer in that transformation that he offers will flood your soul. And you'll find that burden of sin lifted. And your thinking will be back to its proper perspective the way he desires it to be and for the first time you'll see God and yourself in a way that honors and glorifies him Father we thank you and we praise you pray for our fellowship time as well over in the hall afterwards that you bless